Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy E. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we are uh, picking up the second half of our story about Frankie Manning, who was one of the most prominent figures in the world of Lindy Hop. Uh, this started out as a hobby, but then became his career. Starting in 1936, Frankie Manning became a professional dancer and choreographer with Whitey's Lindy Hoppers. And this group performed at the Alhambra Theater as part of reviews. They also toured and they danced for films. One of the places they performed was at the Cotton Club, and this was a whites-only establishment that had mostly black entertainers. It was known for hosting some of the best and most influential jazz performers that existed at the time. The Lindy Hoppers danced with swing bands like Count Basie and Cab Calloway. And even though they'd done plenty of performing before that, uh, performing at the Cotton Club made Frankie feel like a real dancer, just because the establishment had a certain level of prestige. And at the same time, Frankie also started to resent it. Most of the time, the Lindy Hoppers did not have top billing. They were lesser acts, and the stars often looked down on them. So he made up his mind to change people's attitudes about Lindy Hop and to stop thinking of the dancers as raggedy. He started dressing immaculately and encouraging his fellow dancers to do the same. As their fame spread, their tours took them farther and farther from New York. As well as touring all around the United States, in 1937, the Cotton Club show went to Europe to tour France and England. In addition to their regular performances, they gave a royal command performance for King George VI and the future Queen Elizabeth II. According to his autobiography, when she got to him in the receiving line, she extended her hand to shake his. And he was so flustered by this gesture that he curtsied to her instead of bowing. (laughs) That makes me wonder what kind of uh, hilarious comments were made on the royal side of that game after the fact. Well, and there were, from his point of view, there were running jokes about that afterward. <laughs> I'm sure it is not the first time someone had awkwardly uh, or made an embarrassing gaffe in front of her. And certainly it's happened many times since. In 1938, uh, Frankie and the troupe toured Australia and New Zealand for a year where they performed a production called the Hollywood Hotel Review. And this was a major production, and it was very well received by both critics and audiences. The Lindy Hop troupe were the only black members of the cast during this Australian and New Zealand's tour. And they saw very few other people of African descent while on the tour. So while Frankie wrote of being treated very warmly in Australia, he also wrote that he saw Australia's Aboriginal people being treated the same way that black people were back home in the United States. And after they got back, he and Whitey's Lindy Hoppers performed in the 1939 World's Fair. But Frankie only did so for a day. The 10 and 12 show per day schedule was just too much. I think this is the only time that he was like, I can't. (laughs) That's a lot of shows to do in a day, especially if you're doing really intense physical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, though, he and the troupe performed in the Broadway production Swingin' in a Dream which is a swing version of A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1939. I wish there were archival video of this. If there is, maybe someone will tell us about it, because that sounds incredible to me. They also performed at Radio City Music Hall, in the film Radio City Reels, and in the film Hell's a Poppin'. They toured with more jazz greats like Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and Bill Bojangles Robinson. 
In the late 1930s, Frankie started trying to break away from the gender dynamics that were part of the Lindy Hop at the time, as well as ballroom dance in general. Because male dancers did the lead parts and female dancers followed their direction, the male dancers got all of the acclaim and also top billing. But the female dancers were just as good as the male dancers. They just had a different skill set. So Frankie started actually teaching his female partners to lead steps so that they could do them together. For a while, Whitey's Lindy Hoppers were the headliners at the Club Alabama, and they were such a big draw that the club built a whole show around them, which Frankie staged. This was a total departure from being thought of as the raggedy swing dancers that the rest of the show looked down on. This was a huge departure from being the raggedy dancers that the rest of the performers looked down on that we talked about earlier in the show. About a month into their run, Frankie got a telegram from Herbert Whitey White, uh, who the dancer, the dance troupe had been named after, saying that they'd been contracted to go on a tour in South America. They were, once again, very well received by the audience in Rio, although the audience shouts for more sounded like booing in English, so there was some confusion. Uh, they did so well, though, at their original six-week run that it was extended and expanded to tour around South America. But a couple of days into all this, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and the United States entered World War II. This meant that Frankie and the rest of the troupe wound up stranded in Rio for months. They needed to get a commercial flight back home, but seats were really hard to come by because all of the other Americans in that hemisphere were also trying to get back home. Their trip home eventually required bribery, and they got back to the United States after 10 months of being away. They were so broke after being stranded and after their bribery that they had to do to get back home that they had to work in Florida to be able to afford to get back to New York at all. And while they were still in Florida trying to earn this money just to get back to New York, Frankie's mother wrote him and let him know that he had actually been drafted. We'll get to that after a quick break for a word from a sponsor. Frankie was drafted in 1943. He went back to New York to prepare for the Army, at which point his professional relationship with Herbert White ended. After all the effort of getting back to the States and then back to New York, Frankie no longer had the money to pay Whitey for his commission for the South American tour. And Whitey was, of course, extremely angry about this. But Frankie, of course, had legitimately needed that money to get everyone home to safety. They only worked together a couple of times afterward. After joining the United States Army, Frankie served in New Guinea, the Philippines, and Japan. He spends a very few pages in his autobiography talking about his time in the Army. But in them, he talks about facing racism, horrific experiences while deployed, and occasionally performing with the USO when they asked for soldiers to join the show. He had actually tried to get into the special services, which is where some of the biggest name entertainers served, but he apparently didn't have the right connections or enough name recognition. He hadn't wanted to join the army at all because he knew he wouldn't be able to dance anymore as long as he was there. And after he returned to civilian life in 1946, it turned out to be a lot harder to return to his former work. The nation's musical tastes really changed after the war, and the new styles of music just weren't as suited to Lindy Hop as jazz and swing had been. He just couldn't get the feel for the bebop and rock and roll music that overtook jazz in the post-war years. Although he founded a new troupe called the Congaroos for several years and did still do some dancing and performing, 
Engagements were much shorter, and they were not nearly as lucrative as they had been in his prior career. He managed to tour with other prominent names, including Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis Jr., but it was much harder than it had been in the years before the war. The old ballrooms started to close or change their focus, and one day Frankie heard about an Arthur Murray dance school that was teaching Lindy Hop. He went there out of curiosity to see what it was like, and it wasn't a dance that he recognized at all. Frankie eventually met Gloria Holloway, who would eventually become his wife. He would have two children with Gloria, in addition to another son who had been born in 1932, and he supported his family through a job at the post office. The Savoy Ballroom in Harlem closed in 1958. Frankie's mother died in 1975, and Frankie and his and his wife divorced in 1976. In the early 1980s, a swing dance revival started to germinate in cities around the United States. Larry Schultz and Sandra Cameron invited a group of Lindy Hoppers who had frequented the Savoy to their dance studio. The husband and wife team encouraged those dancers to teach swing dancing to a new generation of dancers. Frankie went to a couple of reunions, and while he thought it was nice to see everyone, he really didn't think that swing dancing was making a comeback at that point. But then, uh, one day he got a call from a woman named Erin Stevens, and she said that she and her dance partner had been studying with Lindy Hopper Al Mins before his death in 1985. And she wanted to know if Frankie might work with the two of them when they were in New York on an upcoming trip. And at first he said no, but she was very persistent, so he finally agreed. Frankie watched the two of them dance, and he thought they were pretty good. He said they had soul, and he thought maybe he could help them get a little better. So this event sparked in Frankie Manning the desire to teach Lindy Hop to more people. By this point, he was past the age of 80. Frankie credited the two of them with changing his life. So then he started touring again all over the world, this time teaching Lindy Hop and other swing-era dances. And some of his students had learned by watching the old movies with Lindy Hop scenes in them. He taught people, and he taught people how to teach. He also found work as a choreographer all over the world, including for the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. In 1989, he won a Tony Award for his choreography in the Broadway musical Black and Blue. In 1991, he was asked to work on Spike Lee's biopic of Malcolm X. And at first he said no, because he was about to go out of town for a month. But they asked again when he returned from his travels. He wound up teaching the company, helping select the dancers, and showing them some of the films Whitey's Lindy Hoppers had starred in. He later worked on a made-for-TV movie called Stompin' at the Savoy. He earned numerous awards and acclaim for his work, and he continued to teach until very late in his life. He died on April 27, 2009, at the age of 94. Uh, at this point, you may be asking yourself, Tracy, why did you sell, tell us that this was a wedding episode? And we're going to talk about why that is after another brief word from a sponsor. So we kicked off this two-parter with a story about how people started asking us for wedding episodes after we put up a picture from our office holiday party on our Facebook and Twitter, in which Holly was exclaiming over my engagement ring. And so if you turned in for that part, you might be wondering what all of this has to do with weddings. And here's the answer. The venue for our wedding was built in the 1920s. My fiancé and I have both learned six-count swing dancing. I've also learned Charleston and Lindy Hop. So we've been talking about whether to have swing dancing at the wedding. 
but I have some hesitations about that. And specifically, what I've been wrestling with is whether that feels like an appreciation and celebration of Lindy Hop or an appropriation of a culture that isn't mine. Now, I know that mentioning cultural appropriation at all means that there are some people right now who are about to stop listening and start writing us an angry email. And if this describes you, all I ask is that you please listen to the rest of what we say before you start the angry typing. You know, warm up your fingers. It'll be fine. Um, (laughs) One of the common misconceptions about cultural appropriation is that people who argue against appropriation are saying that anytime someone does something that came from another culture, it's bad. And that is really not the case. When two cultures come into contact with one another, there's inevitably going to be an exchange of ideas and beliefs and practices. And there are examples of one culture influencing another in a positive way all over history. So it's not innately a bad thing. It doesn't come with that baggage inherently. But sometimes what happens is that a dominant culture takes something that a marginalized or disenfranchised culture created and then uses it and sometimes even profits from it without ever having considered the implications of what is actually happening in that equation. Or to be more direct, one culture that's subjugating another culture takes that culture's innovations and inventions as their own. And that is cultural appropriation. And that is what we're talking about here. So African-American vernacular dance was developed and shared among black people in juke joints and rent parties and ballrooms for decades. And for decades, as knowledge of these dances spread beyond black communities, white communities also adopted them as their own. And as we talk about in part one, these social dances were a really important part of black culture. And black culture was, at this point, the target of segregation, discrimination and extreme racism. So to black communities, these dances uh, were often really about social connections and community pride and having a venue for free and creative expression outside of all of the societal issues that they had to deal with all the time. And sometimes it was even a form of political resistance. But many of the white people who later learned these dances were completely ignorant of all that history and meaning. And instead, it just seemed like a fun and popular thing to do. That is 100% my experience when I first started studying swing dancing. Even during the heyday of the swing era, the Lindy Hop that predominantly white audiences saw in motion pictures and stage shows was often a lot different from how people experienced it in a social setting. Sometimes these films and stage productions were choreographed by longtime Lindy Hoppers themselves, but directors and other choreographers who worked on these films a lot of time toned back what was happening to be a little more choreographed and a little less improvisational. And if you watch any of these films, you will probably notice that the dancers and musicians in the dance scenes are often dressed as maids and waiters and delivery boys and other service staff. And this basically is to give them a reason to be in the movie at all, because they don't have speaking roles with the other actors in the film. So there has to be something that makes their presence there make sense. And the thing is that they are in service jobs. This is not necessarily true of every uh, movie, old movie that has Lindy Hop in them, because some of them were basically movie versions of theatrical reviews. But ones where there's a Lindy Hop scene in a film that has a story, a lot of times that story is is a story about white people with white actors. But the dance scene is suddenly a group of black people dressed for work. So... Swing era dances spread into white communities so thoroughly that for a lot of people, myself included, 
saying the Charleston conjures up an image of a white flapper with bobbed hair and a straight-waisted dress. But flappers didn't invent the Charleston. Black people did. Uh, anger and resentment about white people stealing something black people created is a recurring theme in literature from the Harlem Renaissance and beyond. And these are discussions that are continuing today. Recently, Amanda Stenberg, uh, the actress who played Rue in The Hunger Games and Macy Irving in Sleepy Hollow, among other roles, released a YouTube video about white celebrities appreciating black culture more than they appreciated black people. It's a really incredible video, and we will link to it in the show notes. And it ties into this whole conversation of the Lindy Hop. And it's particularly relevant now because in the swing revival that started in the 1980s and 90s, this new generation of dancers was, at least in the United States, overwhelmingly white. From my own experience, apart from one South Asian teacher, all of my swing teachers were white, and the dancers at every dance venue where I danced were also overwhelmingly white. But here's another case of whether the question of whether Lindy Hop is culturally appropriative is pretty nuanced. In Frankie Manning's autobiography, he writes over and over about the racism and discrimination that he experienced as a black dancer and a black person. But the Lindy Hop revival kept the dance from dying out. And Frankie himself, for more than a decade of his later life, devoted himself to sharing this dance with as many people as possible. He found absolute joy in this dance, and he wanted to share that joy. From the introduction to his 2007 autobiography, Cynthia Millman, who collaborated with him on it, wrote, quote, As much as Frankie appreciates the newfound recognition of his talent and accomplishments, by far his greatest, greatest pleasure comes from the opportunity to share the dance he loves so much with a new generation of enthusiasts, young and old. So given how happy he ultimately was about the Swing Revival... The verdict is I haven't decided what to do uh, or whether to have swing dancing at my wedding. But I know I definitely can't do it unless my guests also learn something about its history, too. So will we be getting a, 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 some sort of history crib notes with our invites if you decide to do it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, maybe we'll have a little essay about Lindy Hop in people's little gift bags. I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer. That would be fun. Yeah. uh, There are are definitely some cases where you can look at somebody's use of another culture and and sort of go, well, that's really gross and weird. And this is a case where the history of it is so long and there are so many different facets of it that uh, I don't think there's a very easy answer. And if there is an easy answer, then there are pieces of it that are not really being examined. about how, especially how people who thought that this dance had died and was gone got to participate in it again uh, and share it with other people when they were older. So the jury is still out. Will you share with our listeners when you make this decision so we'll all know? Uh, Maybe. I'm okay. I might do it after the wedding. Okay, that seems fair. Because, well, the the whole subject of appropriation has so many pieces to it, and it's so... Like, if you are thoughtful about it, there are so many different things to consider. And I know from experience with our inbox that regardless of what the decision is, there will be people who are unhappy about it. And I prefer not to get hate mail about my wedding. Until after it's over. (laughs) Until after it's over. And it's interesting (laughs) because, uh, you know, more and more in recent years, 
I, I hope it's a good indicator that people are being more thoughtful about historical context, that there have been a number of weddings that have come up sort of, you know, you'll see articles about them in your social feed about like, hey, this does, probably didn't mean to be this way, but they weren't thinking about what they were doing. And mm-hmm. it involves some appropriation. And you also don't want to be that person. Right. So. One of my favorite examples of that is actually, uh, I don't remember which which one of the wedding blogs that it was on, but it was a woman who had put up pictures of her wedding and it had Native American themes to it. And there was a peace pipe. And I think it was a sort of a fusion also of Scottish heritage. And uh, the somebody wrote this blistering comment about how it was culturally appropriative and she never should have used uh, Native American symbols in her wedding. And she was like, do I need to get out my tribal identification card for you? Because if there's someone who's being racist here, it's definitely not me. Because the reason they had had this particular wedding was because that she was like part of a specific tribe and her uh, fiance, then husband was Scottish. <laughs> and, ah. like, the person who had made this blistering comment was uh, just assumed that that was not the case. So, with that uh, to chew on, with that, with that weighty topic of cultural appropriation, uh, I have some listener mail. Perfect. Uh, our listener mail is from Allie, and Allie says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I've recently listened to your series of podcasts on U.S. civil rights cases that and had something to add that I thought might be of interest to you. I am a Ph.D. student in Melbourne, Australia. Side note, I cannot say that like someone from Australia. I sound like an offensive caricature of an Australian when I try. Uh, I research language discrimination. While listening to your podcasts, I couldn't help but think of what is known to linguists as the Ann Arbor decision and thought you may be interested in it if you'd not already heard of it. I'm not sure how familiar most Americans are with the trial known officially as Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School Children at all versus Ann Arbor School District Board. And if you are, please feel free to ignore this email and go back to making excellent podcasts that get me through many hours of data entry involving my thesis project. The trial is well known to linguists largely due to an article published in 1982 by sociolinguist William Labov. Much of what I'm about to tell you comes from that article. The Ann Arbor decision was a lawsuit brought against the Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School, the Ann Arbor School Board, and the Michigan Board of Education on behalf of 15 children from the Green Road Housing Project in Ann Arbor. In July 1977, the school had declared the Green Road children, quote, learning disabled, quote, emotionally disturbed, and as having, quote, behavior problems. These terms obviously not mine. And had put the children into special education classes. The plaintiffs in the case argued that the children's lack of academic success was a result of a language barrier. They claimed the children were speakers of black English, which is known nowadays as African-American vernacular English, or AAVE, rather than the standard English being used in the classroom. The trial addressed the legitimacy of the claim that AAVE was a distinct variety of English rather than simply bad English, and several linguists were asked to testify, including Labov. This was because Title 20 of the U.S. Code, Section 1703F, protects the educational opportunities of individuals in the face of linguistic barriers. The failure by an educational agency to take appropriate action to overcome linguistic barriers that impede equal participation by its students in its instructional programs. On July 12, 1979, the presiding judge found for the plaintiffs and the school board were required to submit a plan detailing how teachers would be helped to identify speakers of African-American vernacular English 
and the steps that would be taken in order to teach these students standard English. Following the Ann Arbor decision, several school districts across the U.S. implemented literacy programs to help break the language language barrier for speakers of African-American vernacular English, giving them access to the education and social mobility that they had previously been denied. While the case played out a linguistic debate, the judge in the case recognized that the problem was a result of, quote, unconscious negative attitudes formed by teachers toward children who spoke black English and the reactions of children to these attitudes. To quote Labov, quote, the main problem was a cultural and political conflict in the classroom, not a linguistic one. You both seemed quite disheartened that that quasi-segregation and discrimination were still an issue in the United States. Another reason I wanted to write to you about this case was because while the Ann Arbor decision happened many years ago, to me it proves that things can still improve if the problem isn't immediately fixed as we may have hoped. Relegating children to special education classrooms helped maintain a kind of segregation in the years following Brown versus Board, as I believe you mentioned. And this decision helped fix that. I spend my days reading transcripts of nasty things that people say to each other about the way they speak and write. Discrimination on linguistic grounds is one of the last widely socially acceptable forms of discrimination. At the moment, standard varieties of language are associated with certain admirable qualities like education, reliability, and intelligence. And non-standard varieties are associated with not being these things. And by extension, speakers of these varieties are often seen to be uneducated, unreliable, and unintelligent. People are still discriminated against today, but the Ann Ann Arbor decision, along with Brown versus Board and Park, gives me hope that things can get better. She, Allie, then apologizes for this email being so long. Don't apologize. It's got so much good information in it. Right. Thank, <laughs> I just thank dropped you so much, awesome Allie, for sending Sorry. that. I, so often, I'm like, they have multiple reasons that I wanted to read this email. Um, one is that uh, I don't think we called out very specifically in that episode that a lot of the kids that were put into special education at the point we were talking about definitely It had more to do with, uh, like, not being able to understand what was said to them in the classroom than about intellectual ability at all. Um, Disproportionately, uh, black students were in special education classrooms uh, at that point. The other reason was that doing a dissertation about the nasty things that people say to each other about the way they speak and write reminds me of an episode that Holly and I did uh, on our prior podcast, Pop Stuff, about how terrible it is to correct other people's grammar on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah, and a lot of that episode was about how uh, that there's a portion of, of people who are literate and have good literacy skills and they take their literacy for granted. But then there's another uh, huge chunk of people who have problems with those basic literacy skills. And uh, there's like a huge disconnect and being able to communicate Uh, and in taking for granted that everybody has the same uh, verbal and reading skills, which is not true. Uh, So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store which contains lots of shirts and phone cases and things like that. That is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our website. You can put the word jazz into the search bar. 
and you will find the article How Jazz Works, and that's at HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for this and our other episodes. You will find an archive of every episode that we have ever done. And uh, I might put together a blog post with some cool clips of Frankie Manning dancing because it is amazing to watch. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 